I get my kicks on Escape Pod 66. August 10th, 2006. Today's story The King's Tale by Constance Cooper. Hello, I'm Steve Ely, and welcome to Escape Pod. Brought to you this week by Invasion, now on DVD. Yes, a sponsor. Weird, huh? Invasion is the hot new science fiction series which follows the bizarre occurrences in a small South Florida community following a severe storm. Get caught up in the Invasion, the complete first season, now on DVD. No, the sky's not falling. It's just a two-week run. We're sticking our toes in the water. I'll be interested to know what you think. I talked a while back about politics and science fiction and I said I was a fence-sitter in the debate between SF as entertainment and SF as moral message. But it's a funny thing. Once you start talking about stuff like that, you start noticing it more and more. It's like buying a car and suddenly seeing it everywhere. What I'm seeing is that there's a lot of moral parable in science fiction. Sometimes it's very clear, like the old Star Trek, which is full of episodes where the black and white people want to kill the white and black people, and it takes a starship full of outsiders to say, Aha! That's really stupid. And sometimes it's subtler. The new Battlestar Galactica, where the good guys act like bad guys sometimes, and vice versa, and the plot's driven by human weakness with consequences that can take a while to develop. Both of those shows are really entertaining, and I'm not going to say that one's better than the other. What's different about them, besides their complexity, is their focus. Galactica's about a particular set of characters. Their problems and their relationships make the show. Star Trek, especially the original series, was really about the strange new worlds they visited. There was hardly ever any character development. It's about the problems of the world they come to and then leave again at the end of the hour. That seems shallower, but it really isn't. Gene Roddenberry had it right when he realized that a way to put human problems into perspective is to cast them on some alien species. It's easier to think critically about some fictional race than it is to think about ourselves. But it flips the other way, too. The only way for us to connect to an alien people, to find them interesting at all, is if they have human problems that we can relate to. Without that, we don't have a hook to the story. So if you're going to do something exotic and Star Trek was always about the exotic, when they weren't doing some silly historical, the moral message is required to create the entertainment. The more far out your setting is, the more they go hand in hand. You start looking, and you can see this in Asimov, and Heinlein, and Tolkien. It's a valid criticism that science fiction rarely presents a truly alien, alien species. I certainly can't think of many. But I think that if you look at what hooks people, the reason is clear enough. Real aliens without human similarities might be possible to write, but they'd be really boring to read stories about. And now for today's story, for which the relevance of all of the above is left as an exercise for the listener. We present The King's Tale by Constance Cooper. Ms. Cooper is the author of one of our favorite Flash productions, The Teammate Reference Problem in Final Stage Demon Confrontation. She has a background in linguistics, and she's developed natural language software. She's been nominated for the Riesling Award for Science Fiction Poetry and the Fountain Award from the Speculative Literature Foundation. She is currently living in Oakland, California with her husband and their young daughter. This story first appeared in Asimov Science Fiction in April of this year. The story is read for us by the Nitwitch, a.k.a. Maya Whitaker. The Nitwitch, 
that's with a K-N, is the host of Nitwitch's Sci-Fi and Fantasy Zone at nitwitchzone.com. It's a fun podcast. And by the way, she's also looking for fiction to produce an audio. So find your center and be true to it. It's story time. The King's Tale by Constance Cooper The King's Tale had nearly grown back. It was the only thing that showed him the passage of time here in this prison borough. Each time they fed him, before he settled back into his troubled sleep, he curled his body and drew his jewel-scaled snout down the length of his stump. His tail was long by now, and plump with fat, the end tapering to a tip. That meant it had almost been another year. Soon the hunter's warlord would send for him again. It felt good to be nearly whole, though the healing had been more difficult this time. The new tail held no bone, only cartilage, and the king could feel a thickened ring where the old flesh joined the new. The prophet had spoken truth when she said, Regeneration is for the careless young. In the darkness of the burrow he could not see skin markings, but he hoped that at least the bands of yellow and black would be of undiminished brilliance. The king cocked his head. The scuff and scritch of blunt-clawed feet far down the tunnel announced the coming of yet another meal. His captors gave him ample food and water to speed the healing process. Most weeks there were red chick eggs and ground bird meat, and sometimes a haunch of herd beast. Now and then they starved him by bringing the flesh of one of his own people. But despite the stench from the latrine pit, he had never yet failed to recognize Cathara meat. At least... He prayed he had not. On one occasion, he flinched to remember it, the invaders had brought him Cathara eggs, warm, fertilized eggs, likely ripped just that day from the hatching burrow of some poor herder family. It had been the greatest challenge the Creator had ever sent him. His fangs had unfolded without his conscious will, and only a lifetime of piety and self-control had kept him from sinking them into the small bodies of the terrified guards. His venom had dripped onto the filthy floor, and after the guards left, he had lain shuddering in the dampness, feeling the leathery eggs by his flank gradually cool and die. Over and over he repeated the litany of the prophet, People shall not sink fang into other speaking people. People shall not eat the flesh of other speaking people. People shall not make war. They had never brought Cathara eggs again. The king would have liked to think that the hunters had learned from his example, but in his darker moments he suspected that the guards were just too frightened to comply with their orders. For all he knew, they hid their disobedience by consuming the eggs themselves in some deserted tunnel end. There had been days, especially after his failed escape, when the king had longed for death. But his duty would not allow it. Without his example to guide them, what might become of his people? They were already dispirited enough their herds and flocks thinned by the invaders, their very bodies subject to the warlord's appetite. How much worse if they should give up all hope, forget the words of the prophet, and become no better than their oppressors. Sire, a frightened voice hissed from outside the door. Are you there? What was this? 
The guards always arrived in pairs, and this youngster spoke with the accent of the Cathara. Cautiously, the king poked his snout through the grating in the door. This was no hunter. The scent was of a young male Cathara, and he stood at Cathara height. The king's flicking tongue had felt the smooth wall of his chest. Despite their ferocity, hunters stood only half the height of Cathara, even with their legs stiffened to the limit. I am here, the king told the young Cathara, trying to keep the serene tone appropriate to a descendant of the prophet. I'm Dawn, sire, of the Red Rock clan. We have to hurry. The gods won't be distracted long. There was a grinding noise as the young male started shaving wedges of wood from one of the thick wooden bars with a flint knife. Heart pounding, the king hoped no one had used such things against the hunters. Since his grandfather's time, the people had believed that sinking sharp tools into a speaking person was morally equivalent to sinking fang. The whittled bars broke under Dorn's strong shoulder, and the king shuffled out into the passage, the first time he had left his cell in a year. "'Follow me, sire,' Dorn gasped, and trundled off down the tunnel, pausing only to let the king catch up. The king remembered his previous escape attempt, and his logic told him not to hope, that this was just another trick to demoralize him. The other escape had been an obvious setup in retrospect, a gap in the circle of guards that had lured him into a pathetic dash for freedom. It had been a public spectacle, a cruel lesson to cow the people. At the same time, it was a morale builder for the hunters, who were, after all, only a few dozen strangers in a foreign valley. Still, here one of his own people had penetrated all the way into the prison levels, and it was early for the warlord to repeat his victory ceremony. The king's tail was not fully regrown. The king wheezed as he struggled upward, his unused muscles burning, his tender soles tearing on the flagstones of the passageway. They reached the upper burrows of the complex, where the air shafts brought streaks of sun onto the floor, and the king squinted in pain. "'Sire, we must hurry,' Dorn urged. "'A supply wagon is standing ready to smuggle you out of the city, but the driver will look suspicious if he waits too long.' They emerged into a spacious loading area, so bright the king was blinded. His heart pounded as young Dorn helped him into a wagon bed and stretched a stained tarp over the top. The wagon smelled of rotting herd-beast meat, but after the fog of his prison chamber, the enclosed air seemed as fresh as new rain. The wagon lurched, and the king gripped the planking with all his toes and fingers. The underside of his tail felt raw as it slid against the gritty surface. Above him, the wagon cover was a bright brown sky. He lay dizzy, blinking, still not quite able to hope. The hooves of the tow beast clashed on gravel, and later clopped on packed dirt, they were out of the city now. This was farther than he had gotten before, much farther. Suddenly there came the pitter of running feet behind the wagon, and a piping hunter's voice called out, Halt! Halt for the guard! The wagon jolted forward, and the hoofbeats sped up, but the king knew that Tobis could never outrun a hunter. But Cathara could. The king pushed up on the tarp, thrusting his shoulders through the gap at the front. 
the lanky Cathar driver was looking anxiously behind at a group of four green-belted hunters, now close enough to breathe the wagon's dust. "'We'll have to run, sire,' he shouted. "'There's a river ahead. We can lose them there.' Sure enough, a fringe of green loomed up before them. "'We will run,' said the king. He made his voice a command. "'Do not wait for me.' The king clambered onto the driver's platform and dropped down to the road, landing so heavily that for a moment he couldn't breathe. The tow-beast careened by, wagon wheels dangerously close. The driver was already to the trees. The king began clumsily to run, his flabby legs protesting every step. There had been barely room to turn around in his cell, but at this moment the sense of hope that had eluded him, even in the wagon, roared aloud, and he gloried in it. They hadn't caught him yet. Surely even a weak, broken-down Cathara could outpace these short-legged hunters. The sunlight blazed on his black and yellow skin, and he ran, ignoring the pain of torn muscles and bleeding feet. He showed the drab brown hunters the glory of his jeweled tail. He was almost to the river when the flint blades of their spears pinned him to the ground. The pain flared hot but it was only in his tail. With a feeling of exhilaration, the king surged forward to the water, letting the vertebrae part in the way that only the escape instinct could truly trigger. His tail, still impaled by the spears, tore off and flapped behind him like a black and yellow fish. Then another line of guards rose up from the reeds at the shore like a dusty wall. The king's chest thudded into the ground, and he paddled his feet to stop from running into the snouts and spear points of the hunters. Hello again, your majesty, a red-belted guard greeted him sarcastically. Hope springs eternal, eh? The king panted until he could reply with dignity. I suppose it does, he said. I truly didn't think I could be tricked again. Well, cowardice will always out. This was clearly meant more for the other guards. Think of it, a king who won't turn and fight. The other guards twitched their nostrils and swaggered. Deliberately, the head guard leaned forward and plunged his fangs into the king's neck. They paraded him back to the city in the wagon, his severed tail roped and hung from a pole like a blood-streaked banner. The same Cathar drove the tow-beast, controlling them with short, savage jerks of the reins. The king wanted to tell him that he didn't blame him. He knew the driver and Dorn must only be protecting their families, but the toxin held him paralyzed. They brought the king to the banquet place as they had the year before. The warlord crouched on his dais, surrounded by downcast Cathara servants, surveying the hunters arrayed before him. The guards ceremoniously placed the king's tail on a platter and dumped the king's limp body beside it so all could see the tail was his. Then they took their places for the feast. Cathara, with sickened expressions, watched from the outer circle, heads of families, craftmasters, elders. The warlord hissed for attention, opening his mouth far enough to reveal his small, childlike fangs. Once more we see who is truly strong and who is weak, who fights and who runs. 
We see who hunts and who herds, who rules and who submits. Twenty-six warriors came with me to this fat land. We met an enemy who at first seemed fearsome, with huge, heavy bodies and long fangs. They numbered in the hundreds, yet my twenty-six loyal warriors yet live, live and rule. Can this be anything but destiny? In the back row, a burly Cathar was trembling with rage. The king could see his skin flushing orange, his nostrils all aflare. Would he challenge the warlord? Would he betray his heritage? No enemy indeed, but only servants, the warlord declared. The proof of this we see before us. Let the feasting begin! Any Cathara who feels worthy of the name of warrior, let him join us. The king saw that the orange-flushed Cathara had closed his eyes and was mumbling a prayer. As the hunters tore into the warm, fatty tail meat, not a single Cathara stepped forward. The king sent his silent gratitude to the creator. No Cathara would defile himself today. The hunters mocked his people for not using their strong muscles and venomous fangs in combat, because they themselves were puny, needing weapons to bring down their prey. They didn't understand the damage such power unleashed could bring. They didn't know the history of this valley, the days when clan fought clan. If they truly understood what they mocked, they would tremble. The king knew, for instance, that the hunters were hardly venomous at all. Last year, the numbness from the guards bided barely lasted an hour. These hunters, with their disdain for herding, had obviously never visited a farm and seen a young Cathara learning to gauge its strike. It was easy to slaughter a herd beast instantly, to paralyze it temporarily, or numb an injured area for treatment, took finesse. No, the hunters didn't dream of how lethal the Cathara really were— they had no legends of the monstrous predators, now extinct, who had once roamed the valley and tested the early Cathara defenses. In the two years of the occupation, no Cathara had ever sunk fang into a hunter, even under the worst provocation. When the king thought of this, he felt very proud. He thought of his people often during his captivity, and this past year the thought had brought him comfort every day when he sank his fangs into the soft underside of his own tail. He hadn't known if it would work, even though it was his own venom and thus harmless to himself in normal quantities, toward the end of his tail had become agonizingly tender. At times he felt so ill from the accumulated toxins he wondered if he would even manage an escape attempt. Even if he did, would he be able to believe the warlord's clumsy setup a second time? Would he be able to feel the escape instinct strongly enough to release his tail? In that, thanked the creator, he had succeeded. Now he would see how powerful Cathara venom really was. Injected into the bloodstream, such quantities would be lethal to anyone not of his clan. Taken orally, of course, venom was weak. But if the concentration was high enough— and the hunters, though still speaking people, were only the most distant of kin. The king watched as the warlord and his twenty-six chewed down gobbets of his beautiful lost tail. One by one, the hunters drooped their heads. They swayed, 
and then toppled until their gore-slimed chins rested on the bloody ground. Not dead, the king rejoiced, but fully paralyzed. The Cathar's spectators watched cautiously, then whistled with dawning delight. With herder's efficiency, they moved in to trust the hunters with their own belts. The captives would be well treated in the prison burrows. He would see to that, and they would not escape. And that was our story. And to think they accomplished it without an international peacekeeping force. Some would call that fantasy. It's been a somewhat lighter week for feedback. We're still getting more comments for Wichita's production of Head of State a couple weeks back. Thanks to everyone for expressing your opinions. Keep it up. I've also been told about a couple more fiction podcasts going on. I'll highlight those in a future intro. I got a cool email from David, responding to the two messages a while back from people who had experienced short-term vision loss. He's another blind listener, and he has a great website, gradientsofsight.com, dedicated to people in transition who are experiencing sudden vision loss. And finally, an email from Jeff, which I will quote in its entirety. Who is the voice for the introduction of the Escape Pod stories? Escape Pod 66 I find the voice so titillating that by the time I descend from the apex of pure erotic consummation to which the voice sends me, I've missed half of your introduction. I hope that you won't find my comment base or objectionable. It's simply a statement of fact. The voice creates, for me, an image of a starkly beautiful woman of supreme poise and strength, practically omniscient and godlike. Almost as if someone had smuggled into the U.S. the mythical power and authority of the KGB Ninth Directorate. Appropriately, this clarified voice is now making a living on Escape Pod, as well as working secretly for Homeland Security in the successful interrogation of terror suspects. I'd give up everything I know to the voice. Wow. Thanks, Jeff. After that build-up, I'm almost afraid to tell you that it's just one of the built-in voices in Mac OS X. Steve Jobs must have a direct line into your hippocampus. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by the hot new series Invasion, now on DVD. Journey into the unknown with park ranger Russell Varon and his new wife, local television reporter Larkin Groves, who face strange events while living in a small Florida community after a hurricane. Find out how the town reacts to strange, glowing beings in local waters and other bizarre occurrences. Get caught up in The Invasion, the complete first season, now on DVD. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Got a little motto? Always sees me through. When you're good to intellectual property, intellectual property is good to you. All of the rights are reserved by our authors with apologies to Bob Fosse. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. Hey, newsflash! I just heard tonight. They are playing at DragonCon. Repeat, Dai Kaiju is playing at DragonCon. So seeing me wasn't enough to get you there. Four men in kabuki masks shattering the boundaries of space and time ought to do it. Go to daikaiju.org for more. And that was our show for this week. Tune in next week when you can hear Vicky say... Escape Pod 67. And Jeff will miss everything else. But the rest of you will have fun. <laughs> <laughs>